0: Welcome to How Not to DM. I'm your host, Derek. Thanks for joining me on my quest to interview the very best dungeon masters on this plane of existence. Before we get started, I need to shout out my patrons. Thank you for your support of the show. You helped make this episode possible. If you'd like to support the show, want a shout out on my next episode, or want an inside scoop on my upcoming guests, consider joining. You can find the link in my episode notes, my link tree, or by heading to patreon.com slash HN the number two DM. And remember that 10% of my ad and patron money goes to support local LGBTQ youth via Encircle. Check out my link tree for more information about Encircle and the awesome stuff that they do. And now onto this episode's guest intro. Scald of Shenanigans or simply Scald has been creating supplements for games since 2021 and specializes in creative traps and puzzles for different game environments. I've bought and used Scald's puzzles in my own home game and I enjoyed them so much I knew I wanted to chat with her about them on the show. Enjoy.
1: First of all, thank you for having me on the show. Super stoked to be here. Uh, my name is Scald. That's what I go by. I love creating TTRPG content. Um, I am a content creator. I tend more towards Dungeons and Dragons and Pathfinder as far as systems. Um, I'm also the co-owner at Awfully Queer Heroes, where I do a lot of content creation and Kickstarters and that kind of stuff. But mostly just content creation. Uh, currently not in any public or podcasted games, have been in the past but definitely in private and home games because, you know, you got to get the D&D fix somehow. So whether it's a DM or a player or a little mix of the two.
0: Definitely. We'll dig into the stuff you've created in a little bit, but I have used uh, a bunch of stuff that you've written in my own home games. So um, I can definitely attest to the fact that the stuff you create is super useful and uh, has helped me in a pinch in more than one way. So, yeah. I'm so glad to hear it.
1: I love it. Thank you. I'm so glad. <laughs>
0: Cool. So uh, how did you get into role-playing games originally? Do you remember kind of how that went?
1: I think my first experience was back around late middle school, early high school. It was for a friend's birthday, and her dad was a professional GM, DM. And so we ended up playing a game for her birthday. And as somebody who loved, still loves Lord of the Rings and is all about fantasy settings and games, I was immediately hooked. Yeah. So then, of course, the question became, how can I get more of this in my life? And I didn't really circle back to it until I was in my later teens, early 20s. But at that point, I did end up coming back around to it. And that's when I started DMing as well. But since then, it's something that I've just had constantly, even if sometimes it's just sort of in the background. But ever since then, ever since that first birthday party, that's where it all started.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. I have played D&D for my birthday before. My wife set up a a one shot. She had my brother write something and invited all my siblings over. And uh, yeah, it was a good time. It was kind of like a cliffhanger too. We were on an airship and like the captain of the airship we were on shot some sky pirate that we had just caught because he was like, about to talk, you know? And so that's the cliffhanger we left on. And I have no idea. Dang, what, what you'll never next. know how it ends. <laughs> no, no, it was a few years ago. And uh, we keep saying, Oh yeah, we'll finish that eventually. And it hasn't happened. So uh, yeah. Justin, if you're listening, uh, I'm ready with you are
1: <laughs> <laughs> one of those one shots that becomes a more than one shot as so many do.
0: <laughs> uh, so do you remember, The first game you ran, and do you remember the system? And do you kind of remember what the story was and and how it went?
1: Absolutely, because I was terrified immediately before then, had all the social (laughs) DM anxiety. It was for a campaign that I had been a part of as a player. My brother was running it. It was him, his now fiance, me, his friend, and actually two of his friends, and one of their partners. We had a nice, good, solid five person or so game that was going. And my brother had been DMing it for a while, and he got very sick of it and decided that he wanted to play instead. So, because we'd built the world together, even though I was a player, he handed the DM thing over to me and was like, Here, you take care of this. I would like to play in this. And I said, Sure. And I remember before the session being able to pick up and knowing where I wanted the story to go and all that kind of stuff doing way more prep than I needed to, because it was my first session. I didn't really know. And at this point I had yet to develop the deep appreciation for the chaos and unpredictable nature of one's players. So trying (laughs) to plan for every outcome, which you can never do. But I remember being really, really nervous beforehand. And once we got going, because I knew everyone so well and because we'd been sitting at the same table for a while and they were really just cool people, we very quickly got into a rhythm and the stress sort of fell away. And I ended up having a really, really good time doing it. And I continued to DM that campaign actually for about a year and a half till we actually wrapped it up. So it was a ton of fun. But I do remember... Oh, so many nerves and so much over prep before that first session.
0: (laughs) All the social (laughs) anxiety. (laughs) I feel like there's two camps of DMs who start, Mm -hmm. right? There's the you and the me who way over prepped and Mm -hmm. then did not account for all of the different decisions people might make. And then there's the other side of the coin, which is the people who didn't prep a single thing and just go Mm -hmm. in totally winging it from the start. Uh, Absolutely. I, Absolutely. I, I, I feel that big time.
1: Yeah, and I would say if yeah. that was to be looked at as a spectrum, I've definitely swung towards the other way as the years have gone on. There's been a lot more pantsing it, so to speak.
0: Yes, me too. But- me too. <laughs> In fact, you have to do it, you know, eventually it just becomes that, right? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so what do you feel like have been some of the greatest mistakes you have made while running games, either specific or or kind of big problems that you've kind of run into, you know, examples of how not to DM?
1: I can think of a few. Some of the more smaller hardware type ones is one of them is overprepping. That's a lot of time and energy to put into stuff that is not going to be played. And it's very easy to overprep and to try and account for every outcome and focusing too much on things like numbers. When at the end of the day, the most important thing is that everyone at the table has fun. And as a DM, it's easy to forget. But everyone at the table also includes you. (laughs) And so you being able to have fun as well, I think, is a big part of that. For other technical ones, and this one does pertain to things like traps and puzzles, one of them is reading your players. And there have been a few times in the past when I have not done as good a job as I would like to in just seeing where people are at with whether it's a single session, whether it's an event in a single session or a larger campaign Sort of reading the room to see if people are done, fed up, if they need something else. And just being really aware of, of when you lose interest is another one. But I think the biggest one that I would say is getting too attached to certain outcomes and certain events, because it's super easy to railroad when that happens. Especially when it comes to homebrew, as a DM, one of the hardest things to do is to put time and energy into creating something you're passionate about. And knowing that, first of all, it's never going to come together exactly the way that you want it to. Your players might take it and create other chaos with it. So, having that ability to step back from something if you really do care about it, that way you don't end up railroading your players and then getting upset because they don't play it exactly the way you want them to, because that's not how it works. But it's easy to have that misconception, I think, even after plenty of experience in DMing when you're creating your own stuff. It can be easy to get too attached to that, and to forget to make room for the players and for their stories in there.
0: That last one, I don't think anyone's given that specific advice on the show yet. So thank you. And you put into words, something that I've had in my mind before, like I've had that thought, but I've never put it into into words, whether written or or spoken. I definitely fall into that same trap of like, having outcomes, I think are the optimal one that I'm going to try to steer them toward. And even if it's well-intentioned, it's still, like you said, can be railroady. y uh, So mm-hmm. definitely something to avoid and, and something that I have fallen for more than once. I was going to ask about the the second thing there, too. Do you run most of your games online, in person, both?
1: Used to be in person, pre-pandemic, and has switched to being online since that occurrence.
0: Has that kind of been part of why it's so hard to read players and get a feel for how they are... Taking the story, or was that kind of happening before that?
1: For me, there's not a huge difference between virtual and in person. There's a certain level of camaraderie and playful debauchery that can happen with with in person games that I miss. But I think that a lot of it comes down to learning really subtle nuances of telling when people are losing interest. Mm -hmm. And a big part of that can be that they're much more ambivalent about the choices they make as characters. Very kind of subtle cues to look for and pick up one. And I think a lot of it is just having more experience, having more time at tables. And I like to think it's something that I've gotten better as time has gone by and I've had more experience with it. I think the bigger one there with more homebrew is the other one about learning how to make something and then let it go. <laughs> <so
0: to speak. laughs> yeah, that's good though. I know a lot of people feel like they struggle to tell how engaged people are playing online versus at the table. So it helps to know your players well beforehand, but also I think you made some good points there about ways to kind of tell, even if you're not all together at the, in the same yeah. room. So I think yeah. a lot
1: of it's about, cause ideally players get invested in their characters. There's something that's important to people. And so watching the way that people play their characters, when that changes one way or another, or when you notice that they're playing their character from a more ambivalent stance, or becoming less invested in their characters or other characters, that can be a sign that something needs some attention.
0: Yeah. All right. So what about some of your favorite memories of really good stuff that's happened, whether because you made good choices as a DM, or in spite of, you know, bad choices, you've made good memories of improv, combat, role play, that kind of thing.
1: A lot of those have always started with the old DM phrase. Are you sure you want to try that? or you can certainly try
0: i've never said that
1: (laughs) i think that some of my best memories are from games where players did something unexpected even if it's not necessarily rules as written going along with it doing the roles being adaptable to it and letting crazy stuff happen There have been some inspired moments when somebody decides to climb onto the back of the giant bear that is attacking everyone, and because of the roles and the way that they roleplay it, it actually works. And scenarios like that, a lot of which come about in roleplay more so than in combat, that can be really fun and spontaneous, and crazy though they are, they can actually work. And I love them because as a DM, you have to think creatively for how to play through that scenario, how you're going to interpret this, how you're going to roll with this crazy punch. and it's also really fun because most of the time the entire table yourself included end up just cracking up at the end of it. So I would say that that's been some of my favorite moments. There have also been some really touching moments of role play where you can see how invested someone has become in their character, how transformative for their own experience playing their character has been, and making connections with people at the table making good friends. And so some of those moments that tend to bleed a little bit away from the table and into our personal lives in that positive regard, as far as the kinds of connections that we can make and strengthen through these gaming scenarios, that's another one that I think is absolute gold and just some of the best moments.
0: Yeah, I love that. Do you have any specific DMs that you really look up to, whether the people who taught you the game or streams or podcasts that you really like listening to, uh, you know, people that you love learning from?
1: That's a really good question. I have not listened to as many podcasts as I would like, and I have not watched nearly as much Critical Role and stuff like that as quite a few other people that I know. Yeah, I would say two cases actually come to mind. One of whom is someone in our TTRPG community here, Carrie Smith. Mm. who has run the Deadlands games. And I really appreciated sitting at Carrie's table because one of the things that I learned there that I hadn't really given a lot of thought to beforehand is actually how you set up a game, how you frame it, how you make players feel welcome when it comes to not only discussing things like lines and veils, but also saying, you know, don't worry too much about the nitty gritty and the rules. We're just here to tell a story. And just being super clear about expectations from the get-go and what kind of environment you want to create even before the game begins. Which is not something that I'd given as much thought to. Usually it's once the game starts and then getting into it. So as far as setting up a game, that I feel like I learned a lot from being able to sit at her table. The other one is actually some of the advice that comes from... Matthew over at Abyssal Brews. Mm-hmm. And I would throw out that your interview with Matthew and Fernando from Abyssal Brews was actually the first episode of your podcast that I listened to. Oh, yeah. Gosh, almost a year ago now. And yeah. it was absolutely brilliant and great. And just, I was very new to the community at that point in time, but being able to hear about their creative process and also how they liked to play and all of that was super, super inspiring. And since then, especially when it comes to things like marketing advice, dm tips and just all that in general if i've had some really wonderful interactions um with matthew in particular i feel very lucky in that regard so he's somebody whose whose opinions and thoughts especially around things like being a dm but also being a content creator i really really value and admire
0: yeah me too i honestly i feel like i could ask him any question and he would have something wise to say about it i've definitely hit him up for on more than one occasion with uh with questions yeah he's a Mm -hmm. he's a really great person i love fernando too you know his art and his passion is incredible
1: absolutely they're a great duo i tell them they're like the cookies and milk of the TTRPG community (laughs) (laughs) the perfect duo
0: (laughs) they are i bet they love that too
2: pre-crisis post-crisis the ultimate universe the clone saga do your friends throw these phrases around while you sit and wonder what they're talking about Do you want to get into comics, role-playing, sci-fi, or fantasy, but don't know where to start? Well then, welcome to Geek Town. Welcome to Geek Town is a podcast where I answer questions from non-geeks and geeks alike about various geeky subjects in a space without gatekeepers and other toxic fans. What are the different timelines in DC? What makes the X-Men feared and hated when other Marvel heroes aren't? How many colors of kryptonite are there? And what does each of them do? Learn the answers to these questions, and maybe your own, at Welcome to Geek Town. Available in iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and other podcast aggregators. Or visit welcome to, the number two, geektown.com.
0: And now a word from How Not to DM's sponsors. Let's start off with Gemmed Firefly. Need a fresh look for the new year? Head on over to gemmedfirefly.com for the newest tees, mugs, and home goods styled with D&D gamer humor and aesthetics. As always, Gemmed Firefly makes every shirt to order, bringing you all of the softest and most comfortable shirts that thousands have come to love. Listeners of the show get a discount when you use the code DRAGON at checkout. Find your new favorite shirt at gemmedfirefly.com now. And also, all flex, no decks. All Flex No Decks is an actual play D&D 5e podcast set in the Valley of the Sunrise where magic is heavy and dragons are plentiful. The adventurers must follow the leads to find the shards of Tiamat before her minions can. Otherwise, she will be summoned and their world will fall to ruin. Come join the adventure of Heroes, Wild Magic, Dragons, and Crude Humor on anchor.fm slash afnd-1 or wherever you listen to podcasts. And lastly, podcasteditors.online and videoeditors.online. Are you a podcaster or video content creator who loves making awesome content, but wishes you spent less time editing and more time doing the things you love? Check out podcasteditors.online or videoeditors.online to see their awesome rates and editing offerings. Buy a few hours a la carte or purchase bulk hours for larger projects. Let them tackle the boring stuff so you can get back to making more awesome content. Check out the links in the episode notes for both podcasters and video creators. And now let's return to the show, starting up with a brand new minigame for season two.
2: Chaos.
0: This week on Quickfire Chaos, Scald and I are going to use some random generators to create a place for players to explore in a tabletop game and then fill it with traps and puzzles. I'll leave it up to you first. Do you want to build a scenario or do you want to roleplay a scenario? Either or. Do you have any preference? Oh, you know what? I'm going to have you give me some examples of traps you might put in somewhere. How about that? Okay, that sounds great. That'll kind of like showcase some of your traps and puzzles, ideas. And you don't have to like pull them straight from the stuff you've published, but that highlights part of your work that at least I'm most familiar with and that people will like. So let's do that. Nice. I have pulled up a theme and setting generator. And the good news is if we don't like them, we can just generate some new random ones. Uh, cool. So let me know if, if you'd rather try something else. The example I've got pulled up is uh steampunk war. And then what I'll do is I'll generate a random dungeon and we can decide where the dungeon might be. And then what types of puzzles would be in a dungeon for this story, like this kind of setting, right? So you've got a bunch, right? That you've written all of your different supplements for different mm-hmm. kinds of stories. So hopefully mm-hmm. we can make this make sense. I'm going to start clicking on the generator. You just tell me when to stop, and then I'll read them. We'll decide if we like them, and we'll move on to the dungeon. Sound good? Sounds good. Okay. So just tell me when to stop. Now. Prehistoric survival. Is that something?
1: I mean, you throw something out, I will find a way to roll with it.
0: So the theme of the adventure is survival. The setting is prehistoric. So we're talking before... There's really formal writing, formal written history, right? It's probably mostly oral history still at this point. So that's mm-hmm. interesting. That means that spells will be much less reliant on like written stuff, but and more on maybe, I don't know, like earth based magics or or magics based on other things. So that's interesting. For the dungeon, let's just decide what kind of dungeon you might. Put in a a prehistoric game. So prehistory, but that doesn't mean that there's still, or that there's not like caves that people have for specific uses, like burial caves, or because this is a cave people live in. Is it a cave people store stuff in, like maybe they store food and water or stuff they're accumulating? Or is it a cave where they? keep their dead or a cave where they perform rituals of some kind what do you think? i would
1: say this is a cave where they perform rituals so there okay. are some protective measures that are in place and it's a pretty big cave network that you've got going on here
0: all right big cave network then mm-hmm. we've got some rituals going on the theme being survival i suppose we could just easily weave that into you've got to survive this cave yeah. to get to the end result <laughs> What do we want to put in, like, at the heart of the cave that they might be trying to go get?
1: Hmm. There is a part of me that's tempted to say some sort of statue or idol of some significance that they've been Uh sent to
0: retrieve. Okay. I love it. Some kind of religious Uh artifact or relic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. So we've got a cave. You said you wanted it to be big and kind of winding a lot of different parts and pieces to it. We're looking for something of religious significance in the center. The people who use this cave regularly are trying to keep other people out, obviously, because they want to protect what's in there. So using traps and puzzles, what sort of traps and puzzles might these people put in here to make it hard to get to the center and to steal stuff?
1: Starting with traps, I can think of a few off the top of the bat. You've got the roof that's been rigged to collapse. So if you are not careful as you go through a certain section of it, you've got part of the roof that'll come down, and you can either try to dodge out of the way or run further in. The chance, though, might be then that you're stuck in a certain branch of the cave. So you have to choose in a very short window of time whether you're going to go forwards or back as Mm. that roof starts coming
0: down. Could be a dead end. It could be you have to take a super long way around once it's collapsed.
1: You've also got the, you could always go for the stereotypical spike pits. Those are always good ones. I enjoy traps where there's some form of tripwire or something that if the players are observant, they can spot to try to disarm it. You've got the spike pits. You've also got, thinking about the kinds of substances and materials that would be used at the time. So you can have a trap that might trigger a kind of gas or powder, The kind that would be used in cave paintings, potentially, but it could have some poisonous elements to it. Mm -hmm. So that if you do trigger it, you might not be injured, but if you don't do well on a con save, you might suffer from temporary blindness. You might suffer from a decrease to your movement speed, something that hampers you or hinders you in your way forward. As far as potential puzzles and things to sort out, there's a few of those that would be fun. You could have a section of the cave network that's extraordinarily maze-like, where the players. By torchlight are not able to get anywhere, but if they snuff out their torches there's little bioluminescent fungi mm. on the roof that points them which way to go, and they can follow that to get through. You could also have a section of the caves that has water potentially in it, where in order to get to the next section they're going to actually have to dive down and swim through a portion of the cave, but they won't be able to tell that until they actually go and explore it. You could additionally have some idol matching so we're talking about idols here you could have a door that is sealed shut and it only opens up when you have idols placed in very specific locations so for example you could have three that are all sort of connected and they all have something in common so a hybrid animal something like a griffin so you need to first get a bird and a lion into these icons and then you can put the griffin in the third one and that'll unlock the door those are just a few things that I can think of off the top of my head that might make it a little more interesting as they go through this.
0: Yeah, in that last room, you'd have like a bunch of statues, right? And they'd have to like be yeah, smart enough to have grab to the, right the right ones. Yeah, the right ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love the bioluminescent mushrooms, fungus, or algae. I've used that in games before. I've used the tunnels you have to swim through before. Mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. could make them longer so that it takes uh, contracts, and you could have like branches that lead to nowhere, so you have to the know the right way. To go
1: the right way, yeah.
0: Or you could put something in the water, uh, like a marrow or something. Mm-hmm. To grab at people. Yeah, or maybe some creature that needs tribute, you know, like it expects you to bring it some food or else it eats you. Yeah,
1: it's <laughs> perfect.
0: <laughs> Prehistoric is interesting, but you did a good job, I think, by using stuff that they would have, right? Like the powder, you could easily like have clay urns that drop and like disperse it in the air mm-hmm. or something.
1: You could also have sand, so a portion where if you mm. step through something, sand fills it up, and if you don't get out in time, you're going to get
0: smothered. I've used that before, too. I made it in the shape of an hourglass just because nice. I like symbolism. Just you know? for
1: dramatic effect. <laughs> yeah, I love just, it.
0: Just for dramatic effect. I love it. The spike pit could easily be wooden stakes, right? And it still does damage. Mm-hmm. But that might mean that they could use some kind of fire or something to clear it out or Mm -hmm. weaken them yeah Mm -hmm. a lot of a lot of good ideas though i love it and i love thinking of fun ways to keep dungeons interesting because they can be boring but i think if you add the right elements they are very compelling and uh it's really to me part of what makes DD D and what Mm -hmm. makes fantasy games fantasy games is, is this kind of stuff Cool. Well, I love it. I think those are all fantastic ideas of puzzles and traps and stuff to keep your players guessing.
1: Absolutely. Thank you.
0: So we're getting more into your work creating content for games now. Uh, We played a little mini game about traps and puzzles. So let's chat about that first. You have a few books for sale on your coffee page. Mm -hmm. They're called collections, right? You have collections of Mm -hmm. traps and puzzles for various different types of settings and everything. So where did you get the idea and how did you get started and how is it going so far?
1: I got the idea because after I joined the community, I wanted to actually start making content that people could use in their games. And it's very much a hobby for me. I recognize that for some people it is a full-time occupation, but because it's just a hobby and I don't put as much effort and time into these projects as a lot of people do. That's part of why I have everything is pay what you want. So I started it not long after I joined the community. I wanted to create some form of content that people could use. And I thought about, you know, what's something that I look for? What's something that I have to Google as a DM? What's a resource that I look for personally that might come in handy? And that's where I had the idea for it. And in an attempt and an effort to make it more accessible, all of the pocketbooks are they're more like prompts. They do not have stat blocks because I wanted it to be system agnostic. So that's sort of what started the creation of those. And I do still make those. I release one a month. But in addition to that, since then I've joined up with Awfully Queer Heroes, which has meant a lot more content creation and significantly larger projects. So it's been a way to get more involved in that regard. I keep my own little corner things small, mostly because I'm also in grad school full time. So I don't have yeah. as much time as I would like to spend with this kind of stuff. But I still wanted to make something that people could potentially use in their games.
0: I love that. And like I said, I've used a few of them before. I needed some traps and puzzles and I knew exactly where to look to get some good ideas. I'm so, so glad. Yeah. What have been some of the themes that you've covered so far with your collection?
1: Let's see. I try to do different settings. I know that I've done one for wintertime settings, inspired by folks running things like Rhyme of the Frostmaiden. This month's current one is Feywild. There's also Maritime. There's horror campaigns. There's a couple of other ones. Oh, there's one for Sky Settings, mm-hmm. which was inspired because the Over Isles project and the Belarious project came out around the same time, and that inspired me. There's going to be academic, jungle, mm-hmm. divine, abyssal, laboratory, sewers. There's a couple other that I can't think of off the top of my head, but trying to cover a nice wide range of different settings so that people have a lot they can choose from.
0: Sounds like you've got at least a year's worth planned out. I had to schedule too. Just about, yeah. Awesome. I kind of alluded to it earlier, but what is it about traps and puzzles that you love And where do you get your ideas and inspirations from when you're writing these?
1: One of the things that I really like about Traps and Puzzles is I think they can bring an element of engagement to games that is sometimes missing. Mm. A lot of times people break down games into a balance of role play and combat. But there's other ways like skill challenges that you can work with characters. And sometimes it's really fun depending on the way that players choose to use their different skills. They can do things that are really cool. You can use medicine checks. You can use some of the skills that people don't typically have a chance to necessarily exercise. You can use your intelligence because maybe your character has read about history and there's a puzzle that requires knowledge of history. So I think it's a way that you can, first of all, engage with players and give them each a chance to individually play their character more and get into a different depth with their character. It's also a way to keep things interesting without it being exclusively combat. And I also think that there's a level of accuracy to it. A lot of the, the different collections have puzzles and traps that are environmentally based. If you are in a desert, if you are in the middle of a snowstorm, you're going to need survival skills. And so I think it's a way of adding another sort of depth of dimension to a setting that you play through and a way of giving DMs more material to work with. So, you know, when in doubt, if you need something, that you can just throw out onto the table really quick you've got something that you can work with in that regard. As for the ideas, a lot of that comes from being a player in the past and thinking, oh gosh, what were the things that people did that were so annoyingly frustrating but worked out really well, even though we all almost died? It's also just an idea of what in this setting would come up as a challenge and what would be fun as a player to figure out and as a DM to put to your players as a challenge. So That's kind of how I come at each one that I do.
0: Cool, cool. There are some people out there, not me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thank you, Derek.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I heard someone say mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm. that,
0: yeah, there, there's a group who's quite vocal. I don't think they're organized, but there, there are people who don't like traps, don't like puzzles, mm-hmm. say they're boring, say that they don't work, say that they're frustrating as part of their games. Uh, again, not me. I love them. What is your rebuttal to people who say that as far as why you think they are an important part of the game and fun? You kind of covered this a little bit before, but yeah, any other any other points that you feel like you'd bring up?
1: First of all, I would say that your table is yours to run how you would like it. And I do not mean that in a condescending way. I mean, generally speaking, every DM is different, not only for your DM style, but also for your player style. There's going to be stuff that works. There's going to be stuff that doesn't. Sometimes traps just do not work. This is yeah. just how it goes. One of the things that I think is that a lot of it is, there's less room for forgiveness with puzzles and traps. With combat, you've got CR ratings. You've got ways that you can figure out what kind of a challenge it will be for your players. With role play, you've got some flexibility. With things like puzzles and traps, there's that very dangerous area you can stray into where, especially with puzzles, the players are not able to figure it out and they're getting bored. They're getting mm-hmm. annoyed. It's just a pain in the butt. It doesn't seem to serve a purpose. So I think a lot of it comes down to first of all, I love puzzles that have more than one answer to them. Make room for your players to get creative, even if they don't solve it the way you expect it or the way that they're supposed to. If it's close enough to solving it and they were creative, absolutely. So I like things that give you more options when you work with them. And again, I think it comes down to reading the room, reading your players. So I think that traps and puzzles are trickier because. You have to have the right setting and you have to be aware of not straying into that, okay, now this is just becoming a roadblock and it's becoming boring. So I think that in light of all of that, when they do have that moment of applicability, when it does seem like a good time to use them, when you can play through them and when you're able to, as a DM, adapt to your players with them, I think it can add an extra element of interest to your games and an additional way for players to use their skills and their abilities and think creatively. But a lot of it comes down to how it is run and how it is played through. And that's part of the reason why I say, you know, it's not for everyone. It's not for everyone's tables. But in the right settings, I think it can add some really nice flavor to any, any session or dungeon crawl.
0: Cool. I love it. You have named some of your collections Kathy's such and such. Kathy's creepy collection, yes. Kathy's craft collection. I know the reason. But yeah, where did this name come from? And why is it so meaningful to you?
1: So the first three that I made are all the Kathy's collections. After that, I started shifting into more setting specific. But the first year, because my wonderful and slightly maniacal grandmother was the one who growing up always encouraged me to pursue the things that I was passionate about. Very much not along the lines of you need to grow up and become a doctor or a lawyer or whatever. She was very much along the lines of you should just go out and have fun. And she got used to me as a kid being the one, you know, out after dark fighting goblins with a stick in the woods. So she always encouraged me to pursue my creative passions in that way. And she knew how much tabletop games meant to me and have meant to me and how much I've gotten out of them in my life. And so she always supported me to get more involved in that regard. And at the time, she was quite sick at the time when I did end up joining the community, but she got to see some of the kind of first groundwork that got laid. And so I wanted to name my first few pocketbooks after her mostly it's just a way of getting it out there because I feel like I owe her a lot. And while I may not be a novel writer, if anything of mine gets out there and gets into other people's hands, I just want them to know that, you know, the people who support you in your passions, those are really important people. The people who say this idea is crazy. I love it. Let's do it. And so I think that that's something that's really important for everyone, not just for me. And I wanted to have a way of thanking her for being that in my life for me. So that is where the name of those first ones came about from. So thank you for asking.
0: Even better hearing about it the second time. I love it. You did mention this earlier and I was silly to have forgotten about it. Tell us about Awfully Queer Heroes how you got involved with them, and then maybe some of the stuff that you've been working on with them or projects that you've got upcoming.
1: I got involved with Awfully Queer Heroes through podcasting. I was invited by the creator of Awfully Queer Heroes and the other co-owner, Kel, to join a podcast team that was playing through some content, the Tower of the Soul, that Awfully Queer Heroes had already released. That podcast, episodes of it are still up on YouTube. Very fun, very chaotic. So that's how I got in with that group and started meeting with those people. And for me, it was nice because this is a forever DM, it was a chance to be a player again. And then there was a time window where I was sort of on deck helping with some stuff on Twitter. Things got a little bit crunchy schedule-wise, and so I ended up helping with that. And it went really well, so I got invited to get a little more involved with that. And eventually here at this point... I am now a co-owner, which is really great. And I still blows my mind. I am super excited to be a part of all of it. It's been really fun to get more of a hand in content creation and to be a part of even just the most recent Kickstarter, The Adventures in ADHD, uh, was absolutely fantastic to be a part of that. I was brought on very much at the end of that project, but even what little involvement I did have with it was incredible and just so much fun there are many more projects coming down the pipeline. I can't say too much about them, (laughs) but I will say that there's some really exciting stuff to look forward to. As far as more content, the next one is going to be regarding items, socketed items, runes, such that kind of thing. And after that, we've got some spells and just all kinds of fun stuff. So it's been really, really great to be a part of that and to be able to be more involved in that way. It's, It's fantastic, and it's been an opportunity to work with some really amazing folks in the community as well. So, I'm deeply, deeply, deeply grateful to be a part of that and ridiculously excited about some of the upcoming projects. Cool. In that case, I can definitely say that the next one that we'll probably be moving towards over the summer, we're still finishing up with the Feywild stuff, and I think we might still be finishing then, is uh, selling our socketed items. So, it's using socketed gems and runes to empower otherwise common items to give you different benefits from it and so Mm. being able to customize your own equipment in that way to give your character certain buffs and certain useful skills and whatnot that you can actually use it's essentially being able to make your own magical items
0: so like all of the items have a socket and you place the gem in it and depending on the the type of gem it
1: let's say you have a helmet Uh you can take it to a socketer to get a socket placed in it and then using different gems, whichever gem you want, because each gem does something different, you Uh can then place a gem in it that will do something. It's not like you can switch it out mid-combat. You would need to actually take it to the Socketer to get it swapped out. But you can use, you can go and you can get a gem, and based on which one you're looking for, which buff you're looking for, which trait you're looking for, you can stick a gem in there. You can also stick a rune in there. And while the gems have pretty powerful singular effects, so for example, they can add... A ruby can that might add extra fire damage to an attack. Yeah. The runes are slightly more complex. So, you take a rune like Rido, and we were accurate as much as we could be, not only with the gems and the associations that people and cultures have with these different stones, but also with the runes that we use and what their meaning is in the Elder Futhark language. So, Rido, which is all about movement, that might give you certain advantages on terrain and a little movement bump, depending. Yeah. So you get to choose based on what item, because a ruby in a helmet is going to do something different than a ruby in a bracer. But based on the item and how you want to build up your character, you can get potential different advantages. It's a way of sort of flavoring your character and adding different abilities if you want.
0: That's really cool. Like you said, it gives you a lot of customization options that like just waiting to find a magic item doesn't really Mm -hmm. give you or like hoping it's going to be in a shot. Absolutely a very particular style of game, and it's something as a DM you would account for. Yeah, I love that. That's a really cool idea. You've spent a lot of time working on lots of different projects to give DMs ideas for traps and puzzles. Uh, You've worked on some projects with AQH. So you've done a lot to create useful content for DMs and GMs out there. Uh, As far as advice that you've got for DMs and GMs, if you had to think of like one or two really crucial pieces of advice you've either been given or that you've kind of created yourself that you have for people out there running games or wanting to run games what kind of advice would you Mm -hmm. give them?
1: i would say for the first time dms and gms my biggest advice would be first of all know your table because it makes a huge difference having people that you know and are comfortable with second of all take a deep breath it's okay (laughs) it's about having fun and yes that does include you And it's also okay to be really nervous. That is a-okay too. And I think the third bit of advice for the first time in the newcomer DMs and GMs, other than just kind of knowing your table, is also just that know that everyone's going to be different. You know, don't try to be Matt Mercer. Try to be you, because you are going to bring something to the table that no one else can, and that's you. And you'll have your own unique spin on stuff. And that's important. That's part of being a good DM is being your genuine self, which is why I say know your table because you want people where you can do that. For the longer running DMs and GMs, I think the biggest piece of advice I have is when you are creating stuff, when you are running a campaign, be able to put in that energy and that passion, that excitement, and then be able to take a step back because it's probably never going to turn out the way that you want it to but having that kind of flexibility to deal with whatever direction the characters want to take the story in. I think of it kind of like creating worlds two-dimensional, and then when the players come through it, that's when it becomes three-dimensional. Taking enough of a step back that you don't feel the need to railroad your characters and that you can have that flexibility where even if they do take it a way that you weren't expecting and you do adapt in the moment, you're also still having fun and you can enjoy it. And that you can still really care about something, even if you can't control exactly how it turns out, I think, is a big one. And then lastly, I would just throw out on the side, if you want to, if it's important to you, make sure you find ways to be a player in there, too. Because I am of the firm belief that being a player makes us a better a better DM, GM, and, and vice versa.
0: I yeah. agree 100%. Awesome, awesome advice. All right. So we've talked about your collections of traps and puzzles. You've got a bunch available. Pay what you want on coffee. You've got a bunch that you've got coming down the pipeline. We've talked about Mm -hmm. your AQH projects. So where can people find you? Where can people interact with you? And find what you're working on.
1: I would say the best place to find me personally would be at my Twitter handle, which is at Scald of shenan. Because shenanigans was a little too long. So at Scald of shenan. I'm fairly active on there. Yeah, that's the best place, I think, to find contents. I also have my Kofi coffee, however you say it, linked (laughs) up there as well. And I can also be found through the uh, Awfully Queue Heroes Twitter, which is at Awfully Heroes. But yeah, come say hi. Shoot me a DM. Don't be shy. All that kind of stuff.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Skald. It's been a real pleasure. I've loved using your traps and puzzle, like I've said. So uh, I'm being able so to chat glad. To that you. makes me
1: so happy. <laughs> 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 thank you so much, Derek, for having me. It's been so great talking with you. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you.
0: Yeah. Pleasure has been all mine. Thank you for listening to How Not to DM. And now, it's time for a sneak peek into next week's guest, Cassie, the writer of the Folk Horror 5e supplement, What Crooked Roots. I haven't done a lot of playtesting or, like, writing stuff that I feel like should be playtested, but you made a very interesting point in saying that you spent time running it by people who would be running it and making sure that it made sense to them. And, yeah, that's something I hadn't considered, but it does make a lot of sense, like, The first step before you playtest is to do that, like make sure that everyone knows what you're saying and what they're doing. Mm
1: -hmm. At the end of the day, it's not for players, it's for GMs. So I want to make sure that they know what they're getting into.
0: Yeah. To hear more about how Cassie got into horror and game design, and about her best and worst moments running games, tune in next week. Remember to check out my Patreon if you haven't already for even more sneak peeks. Next time you get the chance, share this episode with your friends and family around your game table. Another great way to help me boost the show is by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or rating the show on Spotify. I appreciate all of you for helping the show grow. Thank you to the team at T4C Studios for helping edit and produce this episode. My intro and outro music is by Daniel Zombo. The Quickfire Chaos music is by Exacat. And the Quickfire Chaos Mood music is by Arcane Anthems. Check out the episode notes for more of their great work. And, as always, until next time, roll some Nat20s for me.